is Our American Stories. And now, here's the story of one of America's top comedians who became so successful, it scared him to death. Here's Dave Chappelle's story. This whole world is just drug-infested, hate-infested, drug-infested world. Hate drugs. I heard the worst drug story. You know what my friend told me? You know what he's dealing with? His landlord is hooked on crack. That's, that's terrible. That's pressure. Your landlord's hooked on crack. That means you've got to have the rent. <laughs> he come around. I got the rent. It's not even due yet. It's the 10th. Come on, I need it. <laughs> Let me just get $20 of it now and then uh, just give me the rest of the end of the month. Every couple hours. Hey, look, I'm going to need some more of the rent. This building's falling apart. Things came up. Comes home early from a party. Landlord's in the crib going through it. What are you doing in my house? Ah! Where's the sink? I came to fix it. It's in the kitchen. I thought it was in the drawer. I'll fix it tomorrow when I come for the rent. Dave Chappelle is not your average Hollywood story. Born in Washington, D.C., the youngest of three children, both of his parents were college professors, and his mother was even a Unitarian minister. After graduating high school, Chappelle realized that he wanted to be in show business when his dad gave him some valuable advice. My mother and my grandmother were freaked out. You know, I was the first person in my family not to go to college that had not been a slave. (laughs) So I was really breaking from tradition. And uh, it was like a graduation lunch we were having, and they had my dad come and talk to me, and my dad takes me outside, and he's like, listen. He says, to be an actor is a lonely life. Everybody wants to make it, and you might not make it. And I said to my dad, well, well that depends on what making it is, Dad. He was smart, smart-ass kid. It depends on what making it is, Dad. He says, what do you mean? I said, well, you're a teacher. I said, if I could make a teacher's salary doing comedy, I think that's better than being a teacher. And he started laughing. He said, if you keep that attitude, I think you should go. He said, but name your price in the beginning. If it ever gets more expensive than the price you name, get out of it. Chappelle moved to New York City and performed at Harlem's famed Apollo Theater in front of the infamous Amateur Night audience. But he was booed off stage. Dave Chappelle later described the experience as the moment that gave him the courage to continue his show business aspirations. So he quickly made a name for himself on the New York comedy circuit. At age 19, he made his film debut in Mel Brooks' Robin Hood, Men in Tights. He also appeared on Star Search three times but lost. The same year, Chappelle was offered the role of Bubba in Forrest Gump. Concerned the character was demeaning and the movie would bomb, he'd turn down the part. Just a few years later, his first lead role was in the 1998 comedy film Half-Baked, which he co-wrote. It was around this time that Chappelle landed a role in a pilot TV show based on his failure on stage at the Apollo. I was 23 when I was doing Half-Baked. I was getting ready to turn 24. And I was going through all the things that a dude goes through when it goes from one level to the next, starring in my, a movie that I wrote. So things start getting crazy around you. And my 24th birthday was coming on August the 24th, and I said, this is going to be a big one. And the morning that I turned 24, phone rang, and 
my sister was like, Dad had a stroke. For the next year, I watched my father teeter on life and death. And it was just all this stuff, man. Like I was a, Dad was down, half-baked, didn't come out the way I wanted it to come out. I was real upset about that. Because it was a real cool script. And then I saw it. I was like, hey, man, you made a weed movie for kids. I get a call on my cell phone from Hollywood. I'm like, hello, Hollywood. They're like, hello, Dave. <laughs> They're like, that pilot you did for Fox, the, looks like they want to pick it up. We need you to come out because they want to meet with you. And I was like, well, listen, I can't really come out right now. Got a real bad situation at home. Can we talk about this on the phone? No, no, they would rather meet with you in person. Ah! I jumped on that plane and left my father's bedside, which I regret to this day. And I went out and I sat with these people in this room. Yeah, Dave, we really liked the show, but the, the pilot episode was about me getting booed off stage at the Apollo. They go, you know, but what are we going to do about it? I mean, there's not really any white people in it. So well, it's about the Apollo. It's not really white. Well, you know, we were thinking about the girl on the show. We didn't think she was that funny, not that good looking. I think we should recast her. Maybe, and they start using terms like universal appeal. Basically saying they want me to recast a girl with a white woman. I say, yeah, I don't think I can do this, and, and, and I quit. The following day, Dave Chappelle would learn a valuable lesson that he would never forget about the media and himself. The cover variety. Chappelle pulls the race card. The race card. And I get calls from... Newsweek, 60 Minutes, everybody, we want your story. <laughs> now I'm scared to death. I'm like Rosa Parks or something. I'm like, I'm not ready for this. <laughs> I was just venting a little bit. And then, a few months later, dad dies. And that's hard for a young dude in his life. That's a, that's a real tough loss. I was there when he died. and He went from being my father to what are we going to do? With the body, within moments, it was over. And I'm going through all this stuff, and this is the guy I would usually talk to, right? Dad. And I got to figure this out for myself. I don't want to figure this out for myself. You know, I was beat down. I wasn't living right. You know what I mean? Like, the weed thing was just bad habit at this point. And, and you know what I mean? All these, you know, chicken head girls you mess with when it comes with the territory. I'm just being real. Just being real. It wasn't living right, man. I didn't feel good. And, and the stand-up stuff was just some angry stuff. It was just like I was kind of bottoming out. But when my dad died, because I'd been commuting back and forth to Ohio so much, that's when I bought the farm. When we come back, the rest of the Dave Chappelle story, where he turns his back on Hollywood and a $50 million contract. This is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Story, and now we return to the story of Dave Chappelle. When we left off, Dave's father had died, so he decided to get his family out of L.A. and move to a farm in Ohio. Here's Jesse. So Dave and his family moved to Yellow Springs, Ohio, where his father had lived, buying a 65-acre farm. The illusion of fame and fortune in Hollywood was shattered forever. It's something so real in contrast to what Hollywood is, a very powerful illusion. And when your dad dies, it kind of just broke the spell, like, oh, this is bullshit. Look, I've been spending so much time doing this. What about my family? What about my friends? Wait, whatever happened to my friends? Dang, I don't even have any friends. Ugh. So I bounced, man. And, uh, New Year's Eve, 1999, I, I moved into that farm, and that was it. As far as I was concerned, I was done with show business. But his career in show business was just beginning. In 2003, he debuted his own weekly sketch comedy show on Comedy Central called Chappelle Show. After just two seasons, it was a massive success. Due to the show's popularity, Comedy Central's new parent company, Viacom, offered Chappelle a $50 million contract to continue production of Chappelle's show for two more years. Season 3 was scheduled to begin airing on May 31st, 2005, but Chappelle stunned fans and the industry when he abruptly left during production for South Africa. Let's start the show. Immediately following his departure, tabloids quickly and repeatedly speculated that Chappelle's exit was driven by drug addiction or a mental health issue. I was freaked out, man, with the fame thing and, and being called uh, crazy and drug addict and all these things. Uh, scared me. You know, being treated that way. Like I'm not a person anymore. And then I got to make some real choices, man. Is that what I want for myself? Did I get too big? Because I like people. I like entertaining. And the higher up I go, for some reason, the less happy I am. You know, is it going to get to the point where I'm doing a strip tease on TRL or waving a gun on the street, <laughs> saying they're trying to kill me? No, I'm not going to let it get to that point. I'm going to go to Africa. I'm going to find a way to, I'm going to find a way to be myself, man. I got to, in Africa, there's a small community of people that don't know anything about the work I do, and they just treat me like I'm a regular dude. So I knew that in Africa I'd have a place to sleep, that I wouldn't have to feel strange. And, you know, when they would call me crackhead and all these things in the country where I'm from, in Africa, they didn't know anything. They was feeding me and taking care of me and taking me to the mall and just regular stuff. And it just made me feel good. It just reminded me that I was a person, you know. It would be some time before Dave Chappelle went back to the United States from Africa, and 10 years before he would return to the stage with his stand-up comedy. I didn't even know they were saying those things about me. Then I called home, and people would be like, oh my God, are you all right? Yeah, chill, I'm in Africa, baby, what's going on? <laughs> and then I got a call from a journalist that had been working on a story, and he was like, yeah, rumor mill's going on about you. Just want to clear a few things up, and I'm like, yeah, hey, what's going on? Okay, uh... Do you smoke crack? I said, what? Do you smoke crack? Did you graduate from high school? Uh, I mean, it was all these crazy questions. 
And I thought about never coming back. I said, this, this place is crazy. Like, I'm, I'm that dude. I just thought about all the things that celebrities go through and what celebrities become in our culture. You know, if you Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston and your marriage is breaking up, that's an awful thing. But to see that speculation in people got to sting a little bit. And then I realized, oh, my God, I'm one of those people. That's a small club, man. That's a weird place to be. Ain't really no going back. You can't, you can't get unfamous. You can get infamous. So I got scared. I'm not going to lie, y'all. I was scared to death. And I, I didn't touch the mic. But, you know, it was cool, man. The first time I went back out and did stand-up, it was in Cincinnati. So it's not far from the farm. I said, if I got to run, I can get home fast. <laughs> and... Um, Club sold out real fast. I played a comedy club. And man, when I walked out on that stage and them people were screaming, I get teary-eyed just thinking about it. Because this industry can say whatever they want, but man, people will hold you up. And that crowd, man, my spirits were so low and they were just holding me up. And I, I hadn't told jokes, but this was just coming back like, cry the kid again, you're the best. Oh, man, I was just, I was, I was just doing it, man. In August of 2013, Dave Chappelle returned to full-time touring stand-up comedy as a headliner. In 2017, Netflix released two never-before-seen specials which would hail directly from Chappelle's personal comedy vault. The specials were an immediate success as Netflix announced a month later that they were the most viewed comedy specials in Netflix history. Also in 2017, Dave Chappelle walked into the newly renovated Chappelle Auditorium at Allen University in Columbia, South Carolina. Chappelle stopped to admire the work of Bishop William D. Chappelle, whom the auditorium is named after. He was a pastor, businessman, Allen University president, and more importantly, Dave Chappelle's great-grandfather. After being awarded the key to the city by the mayor, Dave Chappelle stopped by the auditorium to speak to an audience filled with students about the decisions he's made in his own life and the importance of staying true to yourself. For all the things that I've done, I'm most renowned for what I didn't do. I, I've made decisions in my career that a lot of people have called insane. 2004, I had a $50 million deal on the table, and in a crisis of conscience, flipped the table over and walked away. Went to South Africa. Everyone said I was running away from the money. That is not true. In fact, I still want that money. <laughs> the idea that I wanted to just share with you guys is the idea that sometimes you, you do what you think is best. Uh, whether anybody understands it or not. I heard a story about my father where someone told me he used to do statistics for a company in D.C. The company he did statistics for started doing business with the South African government. So he quit his job. It's caused a lot of problems between his, him and his wife. It's hard for a man when he can't provide for his family the way he wants to. And he suffered through it. And a generation later, when I had my crisis of conscience, I was able to go to a free South Africa and get away from the heat. This idea that what you do in your lifetime informs the generations that comes after you is something I keep thinking about, something that is so much bigger 
than just ourselves. And today I'm standing in front of you guys, and I know you guys are like, oh, I know you're bored. But I see family of mine in the front row that, that I, someone who I've never met, and I just realized how, how all, all of us are, are connected. That my great-grandfather built something more substantial than buildings. He, he built a community. And he built, more importantly than a community, he, he built a way. People are trying to replace the ideas of good and bad with better or worse. And that is incorrect. You got to keep your ethics intact because uh, good and bad is a compass that helps you find a way. And a person that only does what's better or worse is the easiest type of person to control. They are a mouse in a maze that just finds the cheese. But the one who knows about good and bad will realize that he's in a maze. It's okay to be afraid because you can't be brave or courageous without fear. The idea of being courageous is that even though you're scared, you just do the right thing anyway. So in 2004, I walked away from $50 million and in November, I made a deal for $60 million. So, although I am not the most famous comedian of my time, I would like to know what their great-grandfathers did. I'm, I'm very proud today. Thank you very much. And that's the story of the one and only Dave Chappelle testament to being true to yourself. He walked away from a $50 million contract, fame, and the adoration of his fans just to be there for his family and himself. Dave Chappelle is not your average Hollywood story. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And that's Vincent Price performing his spoken word part in Michael Jackson's song and, of course, video, Thriller. Price is one of the most popular and distinct voices in horror movie history. Often referred to as the master of menace, the actor died on this day in history 
1993. And as always, our This Days in History are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Price starred in the 1953 film House of Wax, which brought back the horror genre. And while Price primarily starred and narrated for the creepiest of films, he branched out into others as well, including film noir, drama, mystery, thriller, and comedy. Here is Price's daughter, Victoria, talking about her father's favorite films. I think my dad loved to do movies where he felt like he was touching on something authentic. He really loved the whole process of doing the Poe films. He loved working with Roger Corman. He loved working in England. He was an Anglophile from his childhood. And so to get to make a lot of those movies in England and work with some of the great British actors, that was incredibly exciting. That same was true of Theatre of Blood. He got to work with some amazing British actors and actresses, one of them being my future stepmother. But I think all of the Poe movies were a real highlight for him, something that was really important to him. I think some of the movies that he he got to have fun with, like uh, His Kind of Woman with Jane Russell and, and Robert Mitchum. That was, I think, a highlight for him. Champagne for Caesar, because he got to work with his idol. His idol as, an, as a young actor was an actor named Ronald Coleman, and he was in that movie as well. I think he got a big kick out of working with Tim Burton. I think it, it, it felt like sort of... I don't know, like payback, I mean, in a good way. It was like at the end of his career, somebody was giving him something back after he'd been such a generous person and and given so much to so many fans. And here was this fan giving him this incredible swan song. Price was a fan of poetry, especially the poems and work of Edgar Allan Poe. And of course, with a voice like his, it always sounded superb. I was reading through a book of poems just the other day and I came across this and I think it's rather marvelous. The Conqueror Worm, low tis a gala night within the lonesome latter years. An angel throng bewinged, bedight in veils and drown in tears, sit in a theater to see a play of hopes and fears while the orchestra breathes fitfully the music of the spheres. That motley drama, oh, be sure it shall not be forgot, with its phantom chased forevermore by a crowd that sees it not, through a circle that ever returneth into the selfsame spot, and much of madness and more of sin and horror the soul of the plot. Out, out are the lights, out all, and over each quivering form the curtain of funeral pall comes down with the rush of a storm while the angels uprising, unveiling, affirm that the play is the tragedy man and its hero, the conqueror worm, Edgar Allan Poe. Price's reading of The Raven is one of the most popular Edgar Allan Poe reads ever. And by the way, to hear it, go to ouramericannetwork.org. We did a, an entire segment just on that one day a while back. Price's job was to scare people. He loved how wonderful it felt to be scared to death. But according to his daughter, he had a soft spot as well. My dad was more full of life and more full of joy and more full of the desire to be alive than anyone I ever met. And because of that, he struck me as being really different than other grown-ups. And 
special in that way, and, and everybody felt that. One of my favorite pictures of him is of my, you know, maybe ninth, tenth birthday, and he's in the teacups at Disneyland, and the teacups swirl really fast. You get in and you all put your hands on the wheel and you make them turn and you go really fast, and it's my dad and three of my friends and he is having way more fun than any of those 10-year-old girls. He is having a blast. So what really struck me when I was a kid was that, of course, people responded to that. Everybody responded to that. All of my friends loved him. Everybody loved my dad. And I thought they were treating him as special because he was special in that way. And I didn't really understand at first that there's this extra layer of special that the world calls celebrity. He was different than other grown-ups. Victoria shares how he was also different than other celebrities. My dad was told by Helen Hayes in the first two years of his career one thing that he believed his whole life. She said, if you were an actor, you're a public servant. And what he understood that to be was, without your fans, without your audience, then you're just some nut bucket standing talking to yourself, right? If you don't have fans, then you're not really going to have a career that pays the bills. And my dad really took that to heart. And so he never, ever said no for an autograph. Never. I was with him one time at Yale, where he went to college, did, his, did a retrospective. And what happened was they showed all these films, and one evening he went out to dinner, and the Italian restaurant had sort of a plate glass window. And I was eating there with him and uh, my college roommate, and this one guy saw my dad and came in and asked for an autograph. And pretty soon, there was a line going out the door of people asking for an autograph. It took him 40 minutes to sign those autographs, sign them, talk to people, connect with people. He never said no. He never looked down at his plate and said, can I finish my meal first before it gets cold? He never said no. He always was generous. The only time he ever said no was on my 12th birthday. He and I went to Magic Mountain, which is an amusement park in outside of Los Angeles. And we loved to ride roller coasters together. That was our thing. And he decided that as my 12th birthday present, he would sign no autographs because you know, at an amusement park, lots of kids asking for autographs. So kids started to come up to him right away, and he said, you know what, it's my daughter's birthday, and for her birthday present, I'm not going to sign any autographs. And those kids looked at me like I was the devil incarnate. And by halfway through the day, I'm like, Dad, just sign the autographs. They hate me. I don't care. Sign the autographs. Those kids, I keep, you know, thinking, those will be the only kids in America who believe that Vincent Price was actually mean. <laughs> And that's a great story. And here his daughter talks about her favorite film done by her dad. I would say my favorite movie of my dad's is Laura. It's a classic film noir. It's an amazing cast, an amazing director. And I think the reason I love it is that it's a part, a type of part my dad only played once in his career. And I sort of get this glimpse through that part of... A part of my dad, not that he was a southern cad, but he was, he saw himself as being from the south. He was from St. Louis. He saw himself as being sort of a Midwestern slash slightly southern guy. And he was blonde in that movie. He looked like he wasn't playing a character in a sense. He, he was, of course, he was acting, but 
I got this kind of glimpse of who he was, and it was such a different kind of role, and uh, and it's such a great movie. So that's my number one. And when we come back, more on the life of Vincent Price, this St. Louis boy goes through Yale, starts to study drama, and becomes, well, a voice we all we all come to know as the voice of horror. But there's so much more. By the way, Rent Laura. Go and get it from Netflix. Do what you got to do. It's one of the great Otto Preminger films, one of the great black and white classics you've probably never seen. It's called Laura. You'll see Vincent Price in a way you never imagined. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Vincent Price story. He died on this day in history in 1993. This is Our American Stories, and we've been looking into the life and career of the master of horror, Vincent Price. The actor died on this day in history in 1993. Part of Price's appeal as a villain was the humor he could inject into the most sinister of roles. Vincent Price loved a good laugh, and he would often attend his own movies to play pranks on people. Most terrifying line I ever said in my life was, boo. Yes, that was to my seven-year-old daughter. She jumped a foot. No, I get a big kick out of going to some of the spooky movies I do and sitting in a row very quietly by myself, preferably behind two young girls. And um, (laughs) then when it's over, I just tap them on the back and I say, did you like it? And they go right into orbit. (laughs) Right into orbit. (laughs) He was the idol and inspiration of many, including director Tim Burton in 1982. Burton created a stop-motion short film dedicated to Vincent Price. It was titled Vincent, which Price was asked to voice over. Here's that story. Vincent Malloy is seven years old. He's always polite and does what he's told. For a boy his age, he's considerate and nice. But he wants to be just like Vincent Price. He doesn't mind living with his sister, dog, and cats though he'd rather share a home with spiders and bats. There he could reflect on the horrors he's invented. And wander dark hallways alone and torment. Vincent is nice when his aunt comes to see him, but imagines dipping her in wax for his wax museum. He likes to experiment on his dog, Abercrombie, in the hopes of creating a horrible zombie. So he and his horrible zombie dog could go searching for victims in the London fog. 
His thoughts, though, aren't only of ghoulish crime. He likes to paint and read to pass some of the time, while other kids read books like Go, Jane, Go. Vincent's favorite author is Edgar Allan Poe. One night, while reading a gruesome tale, he read a passage that made him turn pale. Such horrible news he could not survive, for his beautiful wife had been buried alive. He dug out her grave to make sure she was dead, unaware that her grave was his mother's flower bed. His mother sent Vincent off to his room, he knew he'd been banished to the Tower of Doom, where he was sentenced to spend the rest of his life alone with the portrait of his beautiful wife. While alone and insane, encased in his tomb, Vincent's mother burst suddenly into the room. She said, if you want to, you can go out and play. It's sunny outside and a beautiful day. Vincent tried to talk, but he just couldn't speak. The years of isolation had made him quite weak. So he took out some paper and scrawled with a pen, I am possessed by this house and can never leave it again. His mother said, you're not possessed and you're not almost dead. These games that you play are all in your head. You're not Vincent Price, you're Vincent Malloy. You're not tormented or insane, you're just a young boy. You're seven years old and you are my son. I want you to get outside and have some real fun. Her anger now spent, she walked out through the hall. And while Vincent backed slowly against the wall, the room started to sway, to shiver and creak. His horrid insanity had reached its peak. He saw Abercrombie, his zombie slave, and heard his wife call from beyond the grave. She spoke from her coffin and made ghoulish demands, while through cracking walls reached skeleton hands. Every horror in his life that had crept through his dreams swept his mad laughter to terrified screams. To escape the madness, he reached for the door but fell limp and lifeless down on the floor. His voice was soft and very slow as he quoted the raven from Edgar Allan Poe. And my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted nevermore. And that's why Vincent Price is Vincent Price. Ask many actors today to do something like that. They couldn't do it. They simply could not do it. Many of the films, by the way, Price was in won awards, including his final film in 1990, Edward Scissorhands, also a Tim Burton film. It won the Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation. Price played the inventor that creates Edward. Here he talks about the film and what it was like working with Johnny Depp wonderful ideas of using the motion picture for a visual effect. This is, I think, is one of his great sort of talents. I, the inventor, who creates Edward. And it's, it's all done in a sort of montage scene where you sort of see the inventor get the idea. He has invented other things. Why not invent a man? So he creates Edward. 
It creates them out of a cookie heart, the heart of a cookie. It's a, it's a wonderful kind of comic but very serious idea because it is, it is a fairy tale. It's a fairy tale with a moral. Uh, all fairy tales have morals. That's why they were written, to teach us something. It's a beautiful story. It really is a beautiful story. It's a very tough thing to play somebody who is created, you know, other than the normal way. Uh, it's very d difficult to do. What do you do? I mean, because you're an unreal character, and yet he's in very real situations. Uh, there are very few people who have scissors as hands, fortunately. But uh, I've, I've just heard the most wonderful things about him and his seriousness and the approach to this character. I must say I'm a great admirer, and, and working with him has been a joy. Unfortunately, Price was a lifelong smoker, which began to affect him. His appearances in the film were cut short due to poor health. And in 1993, in October, on this day in history, Price died of lung cancer at the age of 82 in Los Angeles. He has left a legacy with his voice, and he has two stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, one for motion pictures and one for TV. Thankfully, Vincent was not alone in his line of work and personality. The most horrible and yet wonderful group of men was Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, and Vincent Price. They were often referred to as the horrifying and terrifying trio, three of the most amazing voices in Hollywood history. The three of them were best friends. Connecting them was their love to scare and the ability to portray evil forces. But these men were not evil. Their film roles and distinctive voices had become their art. Here is Christopher talking about his best friends after they were gone. He describes two pictures, the first with his friend Peter Cushing, the second with Vincent Price. Both pictures feature the actors laughing together. He recalls the memory of his dear friends. Acting is not just about dreams. Acting is also about memories. Memories of the films you've been in, memories of the characters you've played, and I have many very happy memories of films that I've been in and of characters that I have played. But far more important to me is the memory not just of the films that I was in or the characters that I played, but the memory of two particular people. Not just professional colleagues, and not just close personal friends, far more than that. And here is the first, I don't know what one of us had said to the other, probably we'd been doing Yosemite Sam or Sylvester the Cat or something like that because we both loved those films, but this was on the set of The Gorgon in 1965. I wasn't dressed for the scene. Peter, I don't even have to add his second name, Peter was dressed for the scene. This picture is of the other. And I don't think I have to give his second name either. Just simply Vincent. This was, I think, the first film we ever made together. I'm sort of half-dressed, and I'm not quite sure again what I said or what he said, but it was anything to do with the game of chess. I certainly said that I 
knew absolutely nothing about the game, and Vincent, of course, who knew everything about everything, was probably a grand master. Wouldn't have surprised me. They were both grand masters of their art and, more important, as human beings. Wonderful people, wonderful actors, and very, very dear friends, and I miss them very, very much. And there you have it, a dear friend, Christopher Lee, talking about his friends Peter Cushing and, of course, Vincent Price. Vincent Price's story here on Our American Stories. He died on this day in history in 1993. This is Lee Habib. And this is Our American Stories. And every now and then, we like to bring you stories from naturalization ceremonies where you get to see and hear through our storytelling assistants and our producers real-life stories of people swearing allegiance to this country and becoming citizens. And by the way, if you haven't been to one of these ceremonies, go, because they're simply beautiful. It's the best of America. Our heart, our rule of law, all the things that people come here for. And it's remarkable. And we've covered a few in Memphis, and we'll get to that later. But right now, we want to take you to Bakersfield, California. And we rarely hear political voices on this show. We don't do Republican and Democrat. We don't do the fighting and the screaming and yelling. That's for some other place. But in this particular occasion, Congressman Kevin McCarthy gave a speech to newly minted American citizens. Congratulations. And my fellow Americans, I hope that greeting has new significance to you. Moments ago, you took an oath, the same oath my grandfathers took a few decades ago. With your words and your intentions, something fundamentally changed. You were the subject of a foreign ruler or the citizen of a foreign land. Perhaps you came here for work or for study. Perhaps you came to reunite your family. But today, you are an American. And that greatest gift your new country can give you is not to live here or to study here or to work here. It's to be one of us, completely and equally. Being American is not passive. Every citizen in every state from the newest born to the oldest living, from the students to the laborers, to the soldiers to the thinkers. Everyone has an important and necessary calling in our great national project. Ordered liberty, a peaceful pursuit of happiness, and the achievement of unity from diversity cannot be a project of a state alone. Its realization and maintenance is the duty of our people, every one of our people. As citizens, you have every right and privilege guaranteed to Americans, and you have the opportunity to be something greater than yourself. To build our country, fulfill our promise, cherish our values, to teach your kids and your neighbors to do the same. 
Because we don't just want you to be here, we want to share with all of you what it is to be an American. We want you to feel the pride we feel when rockets light up the sky on the 4th of July. We want you to smile as wide as we do when our national anthem plays over our athletes at the Olympic Games. We want you to feel the same pain we feel when the bugle sounds at the cemeteries of our soldiers who died on battlefields near and far from America. We want you to see our flag open in the breeze and almost thoughtfully thank God that America exists and that you are here. Most of all, we want you to be filled with that American spirit. That you in your work, in your creativity, in your sacrifice, and in your community are meant for something great. Every one of you has a story, an American story. You come from many countries, but today the pilgrims are your ancestors. You've known many leaders, but today George Washington is your founding father. You've experienced many hardships, but today Valley Forge is your winter. The Declaration is your inspiration, and the Constitution is your inheritance. Lincoln is your liberator. Electricity, skyscrapers, and flight are your heritage. The GIs of D-Day are your heroes. Martin Luther King Jr. spoke of your dreams. The moon bears your flag, and our future is your future. You are adopted sons and daughters of America with every right, every privilege, every duty, and every national memory of those blessed by citizenship by birth. I pray that you grow into your place as a citizen, that you would feel more than anything else gratitude. Gratitude for your new homeland, its principles and protection. Gratitude for those who have defended it through the generations and today. And gratitude for your neighbors who welcome you. Gratitude is necessary for love. And love of country, love of neighbor, love of place is what makes our country stronger and fulfills one of our greatest national models. E pluribus unum. You've probably seen this phrase on our money, or on our seal. I hope it's familiar to you. It's Latin, which means out of many, one. We become one people in our desire to become American, in our gratitude for our countrymen, and in our love for our country. We are a nation filled with different opinions and different people of different cultures. We preserve our country and the oneness necessary for the country out of love. So love America. Love her for her triumphs and for her ideals and for her kindness. Love her even in her failings. Love her loyally. As the president said, through our loyalty to our country, we will rediscover our loyalty to each other. Now, if I can add, in our loyalty to each other, we will renew our beloved country. 
You have taken the first step filled with meaning. Every effort you put into your country and into your countrymen will bear even greater returns. So thankful you for joining us, and I welcome you to the family. God bless you, and God bless America. And again, that's Congressman Kevin McCarthy from California, and couldn't hear more beautiful words said and at a more opportune time. Thanks for those words, Congressman. His story, in a way, talking about his grandparents and all of the folks' stories in Bakersfield here on Our American Stories. is our american stories and every once in a while we like to well tell stories about our favorite tv shows and our two favorite and they've been our favorites for a long time shark tank and judge judy and they're your favorites too and you don't always have the time to see them you have lives we don't and so every once in a while we drill through and find our favorite judge judy and rip through it because each of the cases is a story and that's the great part about judges that's the great part about the law is there's there's two people fighting out a case and fighting out some kind of complaint or problem and working through it. And today, well, we've got a case involving two 12-year-old girls. Angelica and Manuel Serrano claim schoolmate Jessica North threw a rock at their uncle's truck. Jessica insists it was another girl. How do you know each other? Oh, I'm from school. Tell me about that. Oh, we were. She was new in my class. and She was new in your class. Starting when? I don't, I don't remember. Well, what month and year? It was last year. Did you just move to the neighborhood? Yes. Were you friends? Before, yeah. Before when? When we, she didn't, we, she didn't like me, so I stopped liking just her. Just a second. Slowly, and so I could hear you. You were friends when? When she came to the school. How long were you friends? For like two or three months. And then did something happen? Yeah. What? We had drama with each other. You had drama? Yes. What kind of drama? She'll talk stuff about us, so I'll talk about her. Talking what stuff about you? Just bad stuff. Did anything happen that she would say anything bad about you if she was your friend? We, that's why we stopped being friends. That doesn't actually make a whole lot of sense. That was the defendant, Jessica. Judge Judy looks for clarity from Angelica, who claims schoolmate Jessica threw a rock at her uncle's truck. Maybe I can get more sense out of you. You used to be friends? Yeah, we were friends in the beginning of the school year, but then she started making fun of me, and when she would walk by me, she would start saying stuff like, you're ugly, this and that, so I had stopped talking to her. When she would say you're ugly and whatever else, was she alone or with other people? She was with one of her friends. Judge Judy then turns back to Jessica, the accused rock thrower. What was that friend's name? Um, um is not an answer. What was that friend's name? Emily. How long have you been friends with Emily? Since the fourth grade. Is she a nice girl or a troublemaker? She's a nice girl. Now, why would you have anything negative to say in front of Emily about her? Because I stopped liking her. Why did you stop liking her? Because she would start talking stuff about me, so I talked about like her. Like what? 
like saying that all that she would say like that I'm not a good friend and all this other stuff. No, I don't know all this other stuff. She was very specific with me. She said that when she would pass by and you'd be with your friend Emily, you would say that she's ugly. I asked you a question. The question was, what did she say about you that caused you not to be her friend anymore? That I was a mean friend, that I was a mean nice. friend. Yes. Now, why do you think she said that you were a mean friend? Do you think that that had anything to do with calling her ugly? No, I don't, I don't know. You don't know? No, because after we stopped being friends, that's when I started calling her those names. Who told you that she was saying bad things about you, that you weren't friends? Her, her other friends. Her friends? Yes. Did she ever say anything to you? No. So you were listening to other girls gossip? Yep. And because of the gossip of other girls, you started to call her ugly? Mm-hmm. Yes. Getting close. Getting close. Judge Judy stays with Jessica and dives into the rock-throwing incident. Now, on what date did this incident happen with the truck? On June 11th or June 10th. Where did you first see Angelica on June 10th or 11th? Walking home from school. How far do you live from her house? Like two blocks away from her. Do you pass her house when you go home? Yes. Every day? No, not no more. Then did you pass her house every day when you went home? Yes. Is that correct? Yes. And who were you walking home with? Emily. And did you see Angelica? No. When did you first see her around her house? When she would like, she'll walk like in front of me when we were walking home. Why don't you tell me what happened when you got to her house? Because there was a big crowd in front of us and they walked to her house and then Emily got the rock and threw it at her. And then what? Emily got the rock and threw it at the car. Emily got the rock and threw it at the car. Why would Emily do that? I don't know. And you were walking with Emily? Mm Mm-hmm. Just for no reason. No words, just Emily picked up a rock and threw it at the car. I guess, Is that, yeah. What do you mean, you guess? You were there? Yes, but I don't know why she did it. Was Emily jealous of your relationship with Angelica? I don't know. She had been your friend since the fourth grade. How old are you now? Mm, Twelve. How do you do in school? Good. Good. Ever got into any trouble in school? Yes. For what? For um, fighting. Father ever have to come to school because of your fighting? Yes. How many times? Once. When was that? I don't remember. This year, last year, the year before? This year? You don't remember? No. Who were you fighting with? This one girl. A girl named who? I don't don't know her name. What do you mean you don't know? Because it's a long name. I don't know her name. What were you fighting with her for? For drama. For drama? Yes. You got trouble, Mr. North. I know. You do know that, don't you? I have four teenagers, yes. I know that. I don't know about your other teenagers. I know about this one. Yes. I don't know about the other ones. She's actually pretty good, except for, you know, this incident recently. Except for the drama. Yes, except for the drama, yes. Judge Judy bears down on Jessica. Now, when your father had to come to school because of the fighting, what happened? I got suspended. How many days did you get suspended for? Three. I assume if you got suspended from school, that means that you started the fight for some drama. No. Did the other girl get suspended? Yes. How many days? Three days. Did you tell your father or did the school call him? They called him. Did your father ask you what happened? Yes. And when your father asked you what happened, when the school called, what did you tell him? That I got in a fight. Why did you tell him you got in a fight? Because that's the reason why I'm getting suspended. Why did you get into a fight? for drama. Is that what you told your father right away, that it was for drama? No. You told your father right away that somebody had been picking on you? 
No. Well, what did you tell him? That this girl came up to me and then we started fighting. The girl came up to you and, listen, Mr. North, do you understand where I'm going, sir? Yes, I do. And we do, too. Judge Judy then sets her sights right on Jessica's dad, Michael North. He steps forward and stands next to his daughter. Mr. North, listen to me very carefully, sir. I know exactly where I'm going. When you asked your daughter what happened, did she say she got into a fight for a little drama? No, she didn't say that. Of course not. Did she make excuses for it at first? No, it wasn't drama. What did your daughter tell you? She had a fight with another girl. That's what she told me. Who started it? They, they who did, did she they, tell you? They didn't you? determine who started it. No, I didn't ask you what they determined, Mr. North. I asked you what your daughter told you about who started it. The other girl saying some verbal things to my daughter. Now you can sit down. Thank you. That's your trouble, Mr. North. You don't dissect what your daughter's telling you into its lowest common denominator. So when you asked your daughter what happened, this fight that was drama, at first she said the other girl started up with her. Right. Right? Right, correct. So it was somebody else's fault. Correct. That's dissecting it to its lowest common denominator, sir. After hearing that Jessica was taken by the police following the rock throwing, Judge Judy again addresses Dad, Michael North. Let me ask you this question, sir. Why do you think the Palmdale police would pick up a 12-year-old from her house randomly and take her back for a confirmatory identification, Mr. North? Um, Why would you think that they would do that? Your daughter known as a trouble. No, is your daughter known as a troublemaker in no, the neighborhood? Because I, we know the police over there. We know I know some police over there. They know you know us. the police I over know there. Some, not, not. I mean, they know my my family. They know your family from. I really don't want to go into that. From but, positive or negative? I some, mean, they know some the, positive, some mostly negative. But, mostly negative. Uh, just little stuff. So what I'm telling you is, the Palmdale police didn't randomly go to your house. No, they didn't. They went to your house because somebody said that your daughter threw a rock at their truck. That's why they went to get her. Correct. You have three other children? I assume from what you told me that your other children, at least some of them, have been in some difficulty with the police department in Palmdale. Something, Mr. North, isn't right. One kid whose trouble is one thing. You have four and two children are trouble, that's 50%. You have three, that's 75% of your children have been in trouble with the Palmdale police. That means that there is something askew with your parenting. Sometimes one goes a little bit astray and you say, listen, I got three good kids and one that's a problem. When 75% of your children are a problem so that the police department knows your address in Palmdale, that's a big problem, Mr. North. I would look within my house for the answer to the problem, not outside. You owe $902, that's all. Maybe that will awaken you. Parties are excused, you may step out. And that's why Judge Judy's, well, Judge Judy, by the way, Father Michael North's post-verdict comment won't surprise you. He said, quote, my daughter said she didn't do it, and I believe her. These are teenagers. There's a lot worse out there. Well, with parenting like that, we know these parents. We all know them. And that's why we love Judge Judge Judy. She just takes them to task. 75%. Look within your house for the problem, Mr. North. Judge Judy, the mean girl story here on Our American Stories. That's baloney. It doesn't make sense.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we love to tell stories about everything, about this country, about our history, about our future, art, science, politics, medicine, God. We cover it all, and now we're digging into one of my favorite stories that I I stumbled upon in a flight magazine of all places. And I'd known these artists' work, the whole family's work. We love talking about families here on this show. And Jamie Wyeth, well, has since his adolescence attracted considerable attention as a third-generation American artist, son of Andrew Wyeth, among the country's most popular painters, and the grandson of Newell Converse Wyeth, famous for his distinctive illustrations for the classic novels by Stevenson, Cooper, and Scott. Quote, everybody in my family paints, excluding possibly the dogs, said Jamie Wyeth, and non-human subjects are a common theme for him. Long a sensitive observer of his rural surroundings, he paints livestock and other animals with the same care and intensity he devotes to portraits of people. He won precocious fame, in fact, with Portrait of Pig, his picture of a pink and white sow. Technical facility why it showed even in his early work helps explain why his first one-man show in New York happened when he was only 20, and a retrospective in Omaha, Nebraska occurred before his 30th birthday. And we're grateful to have him join us. And Jamie, thanks for joining Our American Stories. Oh, it's great to be here. You know, it, it, you see family legacies in like the Ford family uh, running this great enterprise, but it is so rare to have Michael Jordan, then Michael Jordan's son, then Michael Jordan's grandson be a great basketball player. And I think it's very rare to see great artistic families, that is, of the same artistic line, not, you know, painter, then architect, then sculptor. Um, this is remarkable. So before we start, we always start with the beginnings. Talk about your grandfather, Jamie. Yeah, well, N.C. Wyatt was my grandfather. Sadly, he was... He died before I was born, but uh, he had a huge influence on my childhood because I read all the books, uh, Robin Hood and Treasure Island, all the ones he illustrated. And so it, he became very real to me, and his studio was still up the hill from where I grew up and full of all the costumes and the guns and the cutlasses. So it was uh, it was a wonderful uh, background to have N.C. Wyatt as a grandfather, although he wasn't physically there. He wasn't there, but the work was there, the legacy was there, and the life of the imagination was most certainly there. Where is there, by the way? Where was your home? Because location plays a big part in all of our lives where we're born, and it played a big part in yours. Yes, this was in uh, rural Pennsylvania, a little uh, village, Hamlet called Chad's Ford. And uh, uh, it's a very small town, and that's where... My grandfather moved when he was a young man, and then my father grew up, and of course, uh, now I have a farm there and, and paint there in the same uh, area. And it's a beautiful thing to be connected to the place you're from intergenerationally. Some people need to leave the farm, so to speak. Uh, you decided to plant roots and stay. Let's talk about now your father, Andrew Wyeth, uh, quite, quite an accomplished painter, uh, talk about his influence on you, uh, his painting influence, more importantly, his fatherly influence on you. Well, the, the, uh, his influence on me, of course, was very, very strong. By example, there I lived, our little house was his studio, 
And so I would be there as he mixed the paint and whatnot. It was very sort of a natural thing for me. He didn't go off to an office and whatnot. And uh, and then I had the legacy of my grandfather. And, and my father really never did leave Chad's Ford, except for to go to Maine and the in the summer months. So he really stayed around. I did, however, leave Chad's Ford. I went to New York and lived in, in New York for a while and studied under Andy Warhol. We shared a studio. So I, I branched out a bit. But my father stayed really in Chad's Ford where, his, uh, where, he, where he was raised and where he grew up. And your dad, you, when you were young, uh, he, he encouraged you to pursue this life. And in, indeed, you dropped out of school, and this had your dad's blessing. Uh, talk about that. Well, um, he, as a child, was rather ill as a child, so he'd been taken out of school due to illness uh, and was tutored. I sort of saw that when I was growing up as what an opportunity. They had school board me. All I wanted to do was paint. And so I went to my parents and said, why can't I leave school? And uh, my mother was against it. My father was for it. The Pennsylvania Board of Education fought it. And, and uh, so I left in the sixth grade and was homeschooled. And now, of course, everybody's homeschooled. But back then, it was quite unusual. But my main interest was having time to paint. And it left me time to be with the animals on the farms around Chad's Ford. And it was a, a terrific period for me. You know, and the rhythms of, of, of the artist's life are different than others. And so in the end, you were given this tremendous space and this tremendous gift, Jamie. Uh, talk about that. Did you know it at the time? Well, I, all I knew was I wanted to paint. And, and I think painting, you can't really go to school. I mean, the only thing an art school would do would instill a certain discipline in you. But uh, the main thing is to do it, to paint. And uh, so I, at a very young age, by cutting bridges, by leaving school, I sort of put myself in a position where... All I could do was paint, and, and that was a healthy thing. And, that, you know, I keep thinking someday maybe I'll jump out of bed and say, why didn't I play football? But I don't think so. I mean, I think I've done pretty well without football. Yeah, at this point, Jamie, I don't think you're looking back. And uh, <laughs> interest, interestingly enough, you had this famous father, and the curators and the critics at a, at a certain point in American life were probably not necessarily some at least, not crazy about your dad's more representational art, a lot were gravitating towards this guy, Andy Warhol. And there was sort of a fake war constructed by curators and critics. But you, the son, had a deep appreciation for both your father's art and what many people would call his competitor. I'm sure your dad didn't see Andy Warhol as a competitor, but yet that's how it was framed. How did you reconcile these two things? And how did you so comfortably study under that Warhol style while still adoring and respecting your dad's? Because both Andy Wyeth and Andy Warhol were similar in their interest to paint, and, and the fact that they used different tools and so forth, I realized was irrelevant. I mean, the, the basis of, of their real interest was painting, and so for me to transition from Andrew Wyeth to Andy Warhol was a rather easy thing. I was fascinated by Warhol as a person. I, I know the critics were railing, saying Warhol is the contemporary Wyeth is from the past, and I said, well, let's bridge them both, and, and we had, and I would bring Andy down to the farm, and my father and he got along famously, so it was a, it was a fascinating experience. Yeah, we learned that doing an hour on Miles Davis, and we, we pulled some old archived interviews to celebrate the day of his birth, and he was constantly being hectored 
when he would leave the early blues jazz format to then do bebop and then leave that to do a different style of music. And ultimately, he was gravitating towards rock and towards hip-hop. And this aggravated the jazz critics, but it didn't aggravate Miles Davis. It was all, in the end, it was music to him, Jamie. Well, I, I agree, and the same with my father and, and with myself. Uh, you know, the, the fortunate thing in the, in the art world, critics have really very little effect. Now, in the music world, they can uh, produce, you know, stop records, or I guess in the theater world, they can shut a show down. But, but painting is such an individual discipline, individual effort, that, that really is irrelevant what the critics say. It can be disappointing when you have a show and they attack it, but... But anyway, more, my father and I were almost inspired by the criticism, made us even work harder and go deeper in what we wanted to do. Well, we're talking with Jamie Wyeth, and when we come back, we're going to dig into his work, how it started. We're going to ask him about that very first painting that he thought was a proper painting, and much more. Jamie Wyeth's story, a remarkable family story, intergenerational story, here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We continue our conversation with Jamie Wyeth. You know, Jamie, one short story quickly before we then go into your your, your artistic life. Uh, we, we were talking to David McCullough about the life of the Wright brothers, and his book is terrific. And he had talked about a seminal experience for uh, Wilbur Wright. He had been hit in the mouth by a hockey stick. All of his teeth were knocked out, and he had to spend a year at home and it began not only his homeschooling life, but in the end, an interior life. The peer group was gone. The peer pressure was gone. And young Wilbur, well, it was the beginning of the rest of his adult life. Uh, talk about that, if you could. Well, I, I think what I'm assuming David McGill is talking about, and he's a friend of mine, I admire him as a writer, is that it gave right a, a sense of concentration, a sense of, you know, um, when you're alone and you're working something, it gives you an impetus. And whether it be a hockey puck or, or my leaving school, it made me want to paint harder and delve into uh, my interior mind and use that in my paintings. Yep, and, and I think McCullough was getting at the infantilization of young people. I mean, the, the young people can do remarkable things if left to their own devices. And so often we're trying to put them into groups and forcing them into places that they don't fit. I think it's why so many of us abhor and just regret school and never liked it. Well, true. But, but in a way, that sort of hate and regret can be fire in your belly to make you want to break out and to go into something. So it, it's not all an easy street, and I had many obstacles, but I was determined and made me want to work harder and paint harder. And let's talk about that. So your, your home and your painting, do you remember the first proper painting where you went, I have something here. <laughs> well, the, the, my teaching by my father, really, Bob was by example, and he would do little Christmas cards for members of the family, little teeny paintings. 
and I, as an eight-year-old, would sit next to him and watch him paint, and then I would paint, and so the painting became very natural to me. Uh, uh, there it was, and so forth, and then I moved for it, and then I became totally engrossed in it, and, uh, and really have never looked back. And how do you determine what to paint? How does that come up? Well, that, that always fascinates me. What inspires me? You know, what I do not do is travel the world, and, and nor am I interested in, in interesting faces or interesting trees. What does interest me are faces that I know and trees that I've grown up with and the country where I've been raised rather than just do scenes and so forth. So it, it, I, I try to isolate myself. I, now I'm speaking to you from an island off the coast of Maine where I spend half my year, and that does tend to concentrate you. There's nobody driving up to drop in and say hello. I'm here alone on this island with seagulls and, uh, and so forth. And E.B. White uh, is probably, how far away is E.B. White's home from you? It's not very far at all. It's just a couple hours, and I think he was under the same sort of uh, feeling that I am when he worked. Well, and, and it's no accident that so much of the great American fiction, like great painting, occurs in rural areas. My favorite writer, Flannery O'Connor, were broadcasting here from Oxford, Mississippi, where a little writer named William Faulkner lived. And so I, I, I don't think it's an accident, uh, Jamie, that, that artists seek refuge in quiet spaces. Well, I think that's true, but then great art has been produced in the middle of cities. I mean, I found that with Warhol, working with him. I mean, I, what he produced, I thought was remarkable, and he did it in the middle of New York City. So mm-hmm. I, and I did his portrait there. So I, I think, you know, both can be an interest. No doubt. And the work of Walt Whitman and Martin Scorsese, and we could go on and on. Uh, there's sure. great art in cities, there's great art in the rural spaces, and uh, there's proof of both. Uh, talk about your daily routine. Do you have one? We did the life of Irving Berlin, and Irving Berlin had a simple idea. I'm going to write a song every day, no matter what. Um, what's your daily routine? Well, you know, when you're a creative person, and particularly in the discipline of painting, you have nobody standing over you saying, do this, do that. And so, as a consequence, I drive myself. It's not always inspired, but to me, the opiate of painting is when I'm working, let's say, on a portrait, whether it be a seagull or a person, and it finally becomes alive on the canvas. That's the opiate, and sometimes you have to drive yourself to do it, and so forth. But when it works, it clicks, and that, that makes it all worth it. Which one of your pieces had the most impact on you personally? Uh, the one I'm working on <laughs> right now, <laughs> but... Uh, but, but in fact, you know, I mean, I've done, I did a portrait of President Kennedy, a posthumous portrait, and I created a memory of him by studying millions of films, talking with his widow, and so forth. And, uh, and when the painting was first reproduced on the cover of Look Magazine, everybody hated that it was, you know, that he looked, uh, not that he was decisive and so forth. Now it's the national stamp of Ireland. So it's just kind of turned around. Sometimes paintings take on a life of their own. Yeah, and time changes things for some people, too. I mean, just as with your, your father's art, where at certain times critics liked it, then they didn't like it. Um, I think even human beings approach a piece of art, and one day it might move them, another day it might not, because we change, too. And that makes the paintings change as we view them. Talk about that. Well, well I think it's absolutely true. And, and I, I make a point of really not knowing the people that collect my work. And when I was better that I don't impose my views. Let the painting speak for itself. And that's, you know, with painting, that's unique in the arts. I think with a book, the writer goes out and 
uh, tries to promote it and so forth, and with music and whatnot. Caning is very individual. I mean, the act of a stick with some hair in the end of it and a piece of cloth with sticky stuff called paint. And that's it. That's all you need to paint. You don't need a bunch of editors. You don't need publishing machines. You don't need a, a orchestra. And so as a consequence, it's a pretty direct thing, but, but that's why I'm here on an island where I don't have to deal with people whether they like or dislike it. I just can keep painting. And by the way, it is one of those art forms where it... Since the earliest time, not much has changed, has it, Jamie? Well, not much. I mean, the, the methods are still the same, but boy, the approach. I mean, from abstractionism and realism to romanticism. I mean, they're all different forms. Each has its own validity. But the fact that a, a painting can move somebody, uh, anger or, or uh, loving it and so forth, uh, that to me is the thrilling thing about art. And you're sitting there, and I think the part that hasn't changed is you're sitting there, man, canvas, and paint. And it's up to you to connect all the dots and then move somebody emotionally by the work you did. Well, and I think it's such a field for young people. I mean, I think it's uh, the individual thing, the fact, and and there's a huge audience out there now. Our museums are packed with people. Um, It's a great time for a young painter, it would seem to me. Indeed. And tell us about the portrait of Shorty, an apparent tired-looking older man. That was one of my very early portraits. I just learned to drive a car. I was 16. And I found this man who lived alongside the railroad tracks. And I asked him if he'd pose. He had no idea what posing meant. And, uh, and so I would bring him to the studio in my car, and he would sit there and pose. And out of it came this document that I, I wanted to record. He died shortly after I did the painting. And to me, it's always sort of represents him. And were there, were there uh, outside of Warhol and other artists, were there artists in other mediums that inspired you? Do, is music, will you sometimes take something from music or from movies or from other artistic sources to draw inspiration? Well, I, I, I still, I love Picasso's quote about uh, uh, good artists are influenced by really great artists, steal from other artists. And so I always, I love film, uh, and so, you know, a lot of things, not that I steal, but it influences me. And, and that's wonderful. I think that's, uh, that's thrilling, too, because then you boil it down to your own individual voice. And tell me this, in terms of your, your dad, who, who's long past, um, talk about how you thought, how you think he might have thought about the work you did and are doing. Well, I think he's, I mean, his last words to me in the hospital were, he pulled me, you know, down to his bed and then looked at me and said, give him hell. And he, you know, he loved the pain and loved my interest. And the fact that, uh, I mean, I miss him terribly because we were not father and son. We were equals. We, I could be uh, critical of his work and he of mine. So uh, he was a wonderful force to have. Uh, and, of course, I adore his work. And the fascinating thing of Andrew Wyatt is he's a very strange painter. A lot of people say always sort of like, Norman Rockwell and whatnot. If you really look at his work, it's very odd and compelling. Oh, my goodness. Anybody who thinks it's light has to look deeply. Anybody who thinks Robert Frost's work is light should just read a little more carefully. Um, right, you're absolutely, I use that comparison a lot, Frost and uh, Wyatt. It's always, by the way, the, the seemingly simple things that can be dismissed casually. 
Jamie, exactly. that's just the facts. A, a departing thought, Jamie, about about art to our audience and the life of an artist. Because in the end, without an audience, the artist doesn't have a life. Talk about that. Well, oddly enough, I really don't care so much about the audience. I mean, I produce these things for myself. And what my urge is, it, it knocks me out when I have an exhibition. People come and say, yes, this is really compelling and so forth. But the, the person that really I want to set aside is me, which sounds selfish, but I think that's true of any artist. No, and I had a feeling that would be the answer. And then if the audience likes it, well, you're making a living. And if they don't, you're still painting. Because nothing is stopping Jamie Wyeth from painting. Jamie, thanks so much for sharing your story on our show. It was wonderful talking with you. You bet. Jamie Wyeth's story, the Wyeth family story, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories.